0: ready yeah thank you so we're back for the podcast today um talk it through and today we bring in um quite um powerful topic something that i personally don't know much about uh and and therefore i'm also interested to listen i have julia with me today and and she's the she's working with the arcade project she's the founder of arcade project um and she will of course talk us a little bit more about it and and I would let her explain what is is this about. But I'm really excited to have her here and Julia, thank you very much for accepting joining us. Uh, And before we go ahead and talk a little bit more, why don't you you just let us know who you are um, so people also can relate with it.
1: Thanks so much for inviting me on. I'm Julia Lala Maharaj and I'm a born and bred Londoner and I'm sitting here in the London sunshine and looking forward to talking to you.
0: London sunshine, that sounds like... A <laughs>
1: it's unusual.
0: <laughs> I think there's three days a week, a Now, in a more serious note, um, I, so you, when, I, when, I, when I looked for... I, I wanted to bring this female genital cutting um, topic forward. And, and I, I made a lot of research about in my parallel social researcher job um, and, and there is a lot of information out there that is not really known by people and and you have a project working with that for about 12 years but before we talk about what you're doing now why don't you just tell us why, why did you start this and, and why this topic specifically um, because I think that's sometimes interesting for people to know what, what why the first step and, and what to do as a first step.
1: So yeah, I mean, my origin story, if we can call it that, is um, I spent many years in in the private sector, in the business world actually, and then um, decided I I wanted a complete shift and was um, heartened to be able to go and live in both Cambodia and then in Ethiopia. And I was volunteering in Ethiopia in 2008 on a project that looked at teachers and the education system and came across the fact that 75% of all Ethiopian girls and women were being cut. And I had known about the practice for, for many, many years. For decades, in fact, I'd read Alice Walker. 30 years ago. And I suppose I just thought that the practice had ended because I hadn't really heard that much about it in the intervening time. So to come across this statistic was so shocking and I worked with 20 Ethiopian women and so knowing that 15 would likely be cut was challenging. And of course, taboo. I knew there was no way I could go and ask those women directly about their experience. Um, And as I read more about the issue, I realized that my instinct was to look away. And I think that was one of the first big lessons actually to me is when we're confronted with the unknowable or the the challenging or the complex. Um, it's so hard to find an entry point. And I was lucky enough as an entry point to be able to talk to some incredible Ethiopian activists, both women and men. And I was able to ask really openly, look, you know, as, as a Londoner, what right do I have? I'm not affected by this issue, I have no lived experience of it. And they all looked me in the eye and said, this is a human rights issue. And so that was my entry point. But then it was really, I had a very um, important experience in the north of Ethiopia with two little girls where I suddenly just got so carried away thinking that they would likely be cut and so wanting desperately to go and find their parents and beg them not to cut them. And I suddenly thought, you know, I'm going to offer to pay for their education and I'm going to stay in touch with them for the rest of my life and I'm going to rescue these girls. And obviously in that moment, I didn't realize how awful that savior complex was. But luckily, I caught myself in time, um, and partly just just the, the logistical side of it. I knew I, I couldn't speak Amharic. I couldn't um, find a way to physically get money to their bank. Account. You know, they didn't have a bank account. I couldn't find their parents. But in a way, that was a very extraordinary moment because. I had to walk away from those two girls I had to dispel myself of my own um ego I guess and but it made me make a vow that I would do whatever I could to end female genital cutting.
0: Yeah. I, I so I have a um almost 6 years old daughter mm-hmm. um and, and and just by reading some of the stories um it, it's it's just it's insane. Um, the, before we, we talk a little bit more about the journey, do, is, that, is that something that today is as deep in, in this society and happening so often as 12 years ago or progress have been, have been made?
1: Globally, we're seeing the trends fall. So globally, the incidence of cutting is falling. However, it's falling very gradually and in the countries where cutting is practiced we have some of the highest birth rates in the world so whilst the trend is going in the right direction the absolute number of girls affected is actually rising
0: okay, so it's reducing percentage but not in, in the absolute number that's right that's really scary um just for everyone understanding, and because you mentioned something, I want to talk a little bit more about the savior behavior, but you mentioned something that in, you might been in Ethiopia, but in correcting me if I'm wrong, this is not just an issue in Africa, right? This is an issue in many other places around the world that we probably don't even recognize.
1: That's, that's absolutely right, and actually we believe female genital cutting has taken place on every continent except Antarctica. But in in terms of prevalence, um, it happens in 27 countries in Africa. It also happens in Southeast Asia. In fact, the country that has the most affected women alive today living with FGC is Indonesia oh. of the two hundred million women affected sixty million of them are in Indonesia
0: two hundred million. million women are affected that like you said
1: that's right um, I, we also believe that's an underestimate so there's there's a real mismatch between the data and the reality of the practice partly. Partly the taboo still. So it's not a question that's asked universally in the research and the data that that can happen globally. Um, Obviously, to, to ask some of those questions, you need the government's permission. So in certain countries, governments deny that the practice is happening. So we can't get statistical correct evidence. But also, in many places, we just think this hasn't come into consciousness as a practice that that needs to be called out. So whilst we have data and evidence from 30 countries, 27 in Africa plus Yemen, Iraq and Indonesia, we know that there are 45 countries affected um, and there may be as many as 60.
0: Um, so the numbers are <laughs> insane. Um, for, for everyone understanding, um, and, and also including, including myself, what are the motivations, religious, political? I, I don't know, what are the motivations driving uh, this female genital cutting? Uh, why is this happening in, in so many countries? Um, and, and what is driving this to happen?
1: So there there are two answers to that, that. There's the perceived reason at the community level as to why parents and communities might choose to cut their daughters. And that perception is shrouded in myth. It's frankly been lost in time. And a community or parents might choose to cut their daughters because they believe... It's a hygienic thing to do. It's about cleanliness. They know that their daughter is highly unlikely to be married unless she's cut. So they will cut her as a reason of belonging to the societal group and societal framework that she is part of. If she's cut, she belongs. If she isn't, she won't. And in most of the communities where we work, if you don't belong within your community, it's basically a social death to be outside of it. But the second reason for, for, you know, the underlying reason fundamentally is this is a practice that started almost two and a half century, uh, sorry, two and a half millennia ago. So what we understand is in about 500 BC, one Pharaoh in Egypt chose to cut his harem of women. And he did that to ensure their chastity and their fidelity to him. But by doing that, because his women were in the highest social strata, Others within that society then chose to cut their daughters so that they could ultimately marry into that strata. And so the practice then became adopted throughout almost all of Egyptian society, but it then spread through the Mandinka ethnic group and through slavery throughout the 27 countries in Africa. Now, interestingly, um, really, we know this started as a, a form of sexually con- controlling women in a, a patriarchal way. What's extraordinary now is it's fundamentally the women who hold the practice in place, as well as the men, of course. So it, it's, it's inferred in that the, the patriarchal control is now upheld by the women, which I find very clever, actually.
0: Memory is an interesting word. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell us a little bit more about the Orchid Project. So you, cre- you founded it 12 years ago, as far as, as I understood, or a bit longer. Um, wh- 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 what are you and, and uh, the people working with you doing um, um, in these places and, and to help um, banning this, this type of um, behavior?
1: Well, once I came back, from Ethiopia to London what what I tried to do was a a deep dive obviously into the issues but I had two main questions like you actually which is why does it happen and how does it end and I realized that um, moving on from two girls what was needed were really a few things one was one was to really start thinking about taboos and how do you talk about an issue that is unspeakable. Um, so the f- the first thing I wanted to do with Orchid was make sure that we could talk about genitals, talk about sexual behavior, talk about um, violence against women and girls. Secondly, I wanted to find communities where change was happening. I was very motivated by actually systemic change. I didn't want to just be outraged. I wanted to see what what is possible um, to end the practice. And I think discovering more about systemic change, realizing how many actors hold this practice in place. I also wanted to make sure that there was a real ability to tell truth to power. So finding those who are mandated to do more and then holding them to account to do more. So ORCID started at the kitchen table and Um, I volunteered for quite a few years, trying to talk to everyone I could, um, take every opportunity I could um, to raise the profile of the issue and raise awareness. And I think a few things happened. One was um, I was able to go to Senegal and the Gambia and really look at community-led solutions that were put in place by one of our incredible partners called Toastam, And I spent a few months living there and looking at um, models of change. And it was once I'd spent some time with the communities and saw how they were choosing not to cut their daughters that that really gave me the impetus to, to come back and, and really get a, a team um, together and push for this systemic change that I'm talking about.
0: <clears throat> but and you mentioned that um, these days we have a lot more on this saviorism type of um, um, campaign against, and there is this big thing about the uh, no white saviors and stuff like that. Um, how do you? How did you break this wall uh, of um, a Londoner? that did not suffer in first 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 hand this issue um but is still there not for fame not for glory but to help and that get people to understand that because and don't get me wrong and the reason i'm bringing that is because i'm getting a bit upset with this um exaggeration of now every time someone wants to do something and is not uh, of the same color or gender or race it's a savior and so we are very extreme right now it's, it looks like everything is about saviorism and everyone wants to be a savior and, and we, we look at that as this, this is a very bad thing i i have a personal opinion and before i uh, you answer yeah. is that maybe it's a bit yeah sad.
1: i i agree it's so it's so damaging it's become so polarized and i think everyone has a right. And, and like I mentioned that, you know, my entry was understanding more about human rights and actually my responsibility to uphold the human rights, not only of myself, but others. And I, I think from my perspective, one thing I was always really, really, um, taken by was ensuring that I was shining the light on what others were doing. So, as I mentioned, I I didn't want to be the outraged Westerner, but what I wanted to do was show, show what was happening and amplify the voices of change uh, around the world. So if I hadn't gone to Senegal and Gambia and seen that change and then been able, to ask permission to bring those voices back and um, to some extent represent those voices on a a more global stage. Um, I I think I might have fallen into that slight sort of, um, I've appropriated someone else's issue. I think there's a fine line between appropriation and um, amplifying and that's the line I've tried to tread but I also made loads of mistakes and I think we were in a much more forgiving world even 10 years ago because we didn't have social media in the same way we didn't have people piling on and um, saying you know bring you know bringing people down because because they've made made a mistake so I I completely agree with you that, that we've gone too far in the other direction and you know we we Run the risk of people being too afraid to to put a foot wrong and and say something out of turn.
0: Yeah, and exactly, and that, that's what I I mean. With um, I'm getting a bit upset with this extreme behavior where people are. I would I, I, I what I was about to say is, is even slightly different. So I, I have a probably a very controversial opinion that says what is your your underlying motivation is something that I probably have a little bit less interest, of course, I'm I'm exaggerating, I have interest, but the the actions you do, if they have an effective uh, reaction and and they produce an effective change, um, if you are doing for the glory or for the Instagram, that's kind of, for me, a bit less relevant. And and I know this is not exactly the right way of saying it, but if this is really doing something, I'll give an example. If Bono, the U2 singer, the lead singer, if he goes to Africa and he makes a picture and he puts on his social media with the kids around him, and this is like a bit of white savorism, but if effectively he managed to get help on those communities by doing that, is that a bad thing or a good thing? <laughs> right? So the lines are really, really thin. Uh, and, and on your specific case, which is what we're talking here, um, I'm, I w- I'm, I'm curious to, to also some of those mistakes you did so, also, people understand that it is perfectly fine that you make those mistakes. What it is not fine is that you give up. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, and we know more now, right? So, now, you know, now I actually wouldn't pose for that photo with the kids. Mm hmm. I was in Kenya this time last year. You know, not there's not one photo of me on Instagram with the kids. There is a photo of me with the mothers themselves holding the kids. Mm-hmm. So, so, I, and again, I think, I think, and this is why we learn. You know, it, it's, it's. I'm not going to take a cute picture of the kids under the age of five to pull the heartstrings of the Western donors. I'm going to represent that five-year-old in the way that when she's 20 she's she's not going to be seen as a victim or mm. i don't know i think i think i think without the polarities i think it's a helpful conversation to be having the the trouble is we we are often in this race to the bottom or this very sound environment where where things do get misconstrued
0: Mm. and and i understand and i I had a fantastic conversation a few weeks ago with chris parks a photographer um, that was born and raised in during the apartheid in south africa Um, and and himself talked about a bit of this uh, white saviorism and the, the the fact that photographers also contribute a lot with that because of the pictures they try to take to make it Kind of soundbiting because it's the children, the the, the, the poverty with kids, the hunger and children, and so we, we kind of we create a what's what he called an institution, institutionalized racism by believe making people believe that they are always the victims and we are there to save them. So I'm I'm completely into that. I just think that sometimes we we can't go extremes both ways. So we don't get people to stop helping because they are afraid of what pe- others may think about. It. So I have myself, right? A lot of people tells me that I'm doing this project for fame. And I keep telling them. Um, fortunately, I, I have, a, I have a, a decent job and a well-known name. <laughs> so I don't necessarily need that to get famous. Mm. But, but, but it's the same. Um, so I also get the same type of comment. It's fine. I, I can deal with that. Let's go back to work at project, which is why we're talking. Um, so 12 years is a long time and as you said there's a lot of a lot of things changed social media the impact you can have on people the 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 quick and easy way you have to broadcast information how much have you and the the project changed over these 12 years or it's 12 years right i keep saying 12 because i'm doing math on my own mind (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's, it's it's
1: Twelve. It's twelve since I since I set it, it up. It's it's it got registration in um, 2011. So nine years as an entity. Um, it's changed. So the work we do and the movement itself has changed a huge amount in that time. What hasn't changed are our core values. Um, what hasn't changed are The fact that we look to communities um, as uh, the ones with the wisdom and the ability to stop cutting. So I think it would be very easy to get carried away um, into the sort of glitzy, (laughs) not that glitzy world of the UN or funders or governments or um, and forget that actually that decision that's taken to cut a girl is done at the household level. So we remain really true to the core of how to shift that decision making within a community. And then everything um, around that needs to fall into its own place so that's really important to us i think what has changed in the last decade is um people's awareness around the issue certainly here in the uk uh when i began uh, i was really speaking um and lifting silence on a, a taboo and there were others also working in the field but we hadn't really made much traction now in the UK there is a huge level of awareness um, the UK government has put in multi-agency guidelines uh, the media has picked up so much more on the issue people in our sector in in the third sector now work on it in, in a much stronger way and Uh, Affected communities themselves are also getting much more engaged with the dialogue and Crucially crucially none of this would have happened if survivors themselves hadn't started speaking out So we've really seen a shift beyond My wildest dreams actually in terms of raising awareness about the issue Globally, that's that change is also beginning to happen so there was a UN General Assembly resolution. There's, there have been more donors come on board. Um, there are more and more people, I do think, through social media, uh, aware of a movement that's, that's forming. Of course, we're still dealing with some of the most marginalized and neglected girls on the planet. So certainly social media is not reaching them for the next 10 15 20 years and it's not just a question of connectivity it's still about the position of those girls in society so we've got a long way to go in many respects still
0: um you you mentioned that right in the beginning when you were talking how, how do you handle or or what challenges do you face not just because you mentioned the challenges you face and the family level and the kind of micro-society within the specific area, but let's go a bit higher level and let's go a bit to the governments and to the country perspective of that. What kind of challenges do you face? Because one thing is I change a mother, other thing is I change the president of the country, (laughs) right? And I'm exaggerating because I don't know if the president believes or not, but what kind of challenges do you also face at that level?
1: They're huge, absolutely huge. I mean, interestingly... Recently, some more political champions have come on board. So, in fact, the the president and first lady of Burkina Faso led the UN General Assembly resolution. So, in in certain countries, you can get political leadership. Uh, the most recent one is is um, Kenyatta in Kenya, who um, has. Pledged to end FGM by 2022 in his country, Um, so so that can it's like everything. Every actor in the system can either be working with you or against you, Um, and when you when uh, there, there can be this almost perfect storm in some regions where. Everything can come together at once. So you know, maybe the the religious leaders, interfaith, have signed up to a statement saying that they do not support cutting. At the same time, the, the political will comes in. At the same time, there's a rise in the role of women, and and there um, there may be an important female minister who's um, you know very outspoken, and and everything can can flow and change begins to look possible and then you know suddenly uh, that country could have a change in politics or there could be a rise in a faction or something else can happen and all of that can get eroded very quickly so you as a social scientist will know all about this sort of <laughs> mm. all of these different drivers and how you know this change is not linear and it's not forward linear But each time that we bring on more champions, I think it is getting stronger in people's ability to realize that girls don't have to be cut.
0: Um, And and an interesting question that I I get, I got a few times already when I was um, talking about your project. I I know that you are mostly talking about female, but this also happens in male, in, in, in boys. In, in men, or, or is mostly in female?
1: Well, it's a, a really interesting conversation, and um, the two practices simply can't be equated because of the severity of what is cut away with female genital cutting. Mm-hmm. However, Boys have rights as much as girls have rights. So for me as an activist against female genital cutting, I absolutely cannot in the same breath then say, and of course it's absolutely right for boys to have their foreskin cut away forcibly. Whether, whether it's mandated by religion, whether it's for health or not, um, I think it's really important that everyone has a choice about what happens to their body. And there's a cognitive dissonance that says, FGC is a terrible crime and male circumcision is absolutely fine. I, I personally find that it's, it's I, I I can't sit here and say that one is okay and one isn't. However, I think there's a whole need for activism by male advocates and others on male circumcision that is separate to the advocacy that we're doing around FGC. The reason I say they're so different is there are different types of female genital cutting. They range from A nick in the hood of the clitoris to draw blood through to the cutting away of the clitoris, the cutting away of the labia. Um, So in some cases, the outer labia can be cut away, but the inner labia and clitoris can be left. In other cases, all of the labia will be cut away in some cases the labia and the clitoris will be cut away and um, all of the external genitals um, will be removed almost scraped clean and then the wound that is left will be sewn closed either with um, thorns or with in some cultures they use mud and thorns to to close that wound They'll leave a tiny hole for urine and menses to escape. But then, often, a girl's legs will be bound for up to 30 or 40 days as that wound heals. And as it heals, it seals the vaginal orifice. So, that when you think back to what I was saying about um, uh, Egypt and someone. wanting to prove chastity um, it's almost as if the body forms its own chastity belt so then with these different degrees of the the practice um, the impacts throughout a girl's life are absolutely devastating and with the different types um, Again, you know, these are girls under five years old. There's no anesthetic. They're held down and cut, forced often by their female relatives. So the health impacts are can be absolutely horrendous and devastating. Um, and at each point in a girl's life, particularly if she's had that most invasive type, she will have this incredibly delicate tissue around her vagina and vulva will have to be cut again and again so she'll be cut open in order to have sex but she'll only be cut enough for penetrative sex. If she's able to get pregnant she will then be cut open again further to give birth and then those wounds will be sewn back. And the women we work with can be giving birth eight, 10, 12 times. Each time she'll be cut and re-sewn. Each time she'll have keloid scarring, she, the, the tissue will become tougher. Um, and I think what we don't know is how many girls die from being cut at the time of the cut or die as a result of the infections or the sepsis or the tetanus throughout her life and this is why i will defend everyone's right not to be cut including boys but it's also why we cannot equate the two practices
0: julie i i tell you um by hearing your um raw description of what does. Female genital cutting I means, and I was avoiding to ask <laughs> because I never know <clears throat> if there is going to be um, detailed description. I think is very. Thank you very much for doing that. It makes me physically body sick. Uh, it's, it's absolutely insane to imagine um, such a behavior in such a painful journey for any uh, being, uh, human being, um, to go through. <clears throat> so I'm. I'm Thank you for bringing that up. And I, I really hope that more people understand, well, this is not just a trending hashtag. This is a real problem. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And
0: people should take it really serious. Um, Julia, we are, we are coming close to an end. And I think was was, at least for me, was a very enlightening um, conversation. And, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and I usually ask people to leave uh, one last message uh, for 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 the for the for everyone listening to take away and and think about it um not that they don't do it with the rest of the conversation but just a you know I'd usually say if you have to put in one sentence what you should go home and think about and take from this conversation how would you put it
1: i think the important thing i'd love to leave people with is that this practice is ending, but not quickly enough. So I want to leave you, the listener, with the knowledge that there are now thousands of communities who are making a better choice for their daughters. So they come together after three years of human rights education, of learning about their bodies, of learning about their responsibilities, and they make a different choice for their daughters. And they then um, spread that choice throughout other intermarrying communities. So there is hope. However, we need to do so much more. So the one thing I say to people is please talk about it. Please, if you've listened to this, please share this podcast, find out more, inform yourselves, but just to underscore the hope, just to remind people that foot binding in China ended in less than 10 years, and unfortunately we all know about exponential change right now because of coronavirus and how exponential change happens. But there is a possibility for exponential change from community to community as more and more choose to abandon the practice. And and that's what I hold on to, is the fundamental knowledge that people are good. They're not doing this practice to torture their daughters. They're doing it to allow them to belong until they can come to a point where they realize through education that everyone in the community can choose to abandon together and then spread that message onwards. So it's that hope that keeps me going as an activist, um, knowing that such change is possible in the world.
0: <clears throat> and uh, your, your last message is very interesting, <clears throat> sorry, um, because even myself, while, <clears throat> sorry, while listening, um, we have the tendency to judge the the people that are cutting Uh, but as you said sometimes they don't know anything else and then it's not necessarily because they want to they want to cause harm or do something bad it's just lack of education or lack of awareness or whatever and the crucial
1: sorry the crucial thing i've learned is no one individual can act alone in something like this which is a social norm a social norm is held collectively and yes. for one person to try and turn a tide against a social norm physically isn't possible within the timescale they have. Yes. Whereas if collective choice can be made, it's incredible how quickly we can get to a tipping point and beyond that. And, and it's a real message for today's society how we move away from isolation into connection and communication.
0: Yeah, indeed. Juliet, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you for the for the fantastic conversation we had. And I really hope that more people will enjoy it as much as I did. As usually I say, and everything is every single podcast, this is a very selfish project because even if no one listens, I learned a lot at least. Um, but but it's I really hope more people listen to that uh, because it's it's the way you you mentioned the way you explained it, the way you you brought it up it's it's quite easy to understand and also easy to bring more awareness to something that we should um, be more aware of so thank you very much
1: you're very welcome thank you for inviting me.